0: It's been awesome to have them worshiping with us regularly uh, over the last several months and they're sort of splitting time between uh, our sister PCA churches getting to know new people and as they launch out into this new ministry. So thank you guys so much. It's, uh, it's great to look out there and see so many uh, families and friends, uh, to see uh, so many folks who are in town visiting uh, your family and friends this week. I hope you... Uh, Hope you feel welcome here today. I hope you feel welcome at home as you come back. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to come back home. It's hard to come back to your parents' place. Um, So I hope that your time this week is really uh, sweet and rich like the food that you will eat. I hope it doesn't give you heartburn um, spending time with your parents. But um, I'm glad you're here. So as as Caleb mentioned, (coughs) for the last six weeks or so, uh, beginning around Thanksgiving and then really going through New Year's Day, this is a season of feast. Uh, We sort of eat and drink our way through the holidays. It's a season of shared meals with family and friends. And so it's fitting that during this season, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, looking at different meals that Jesus shared. And so if you are visiting, that's what we've been doing for the last several weeks. We've been working our way through Luke's gospel, looking at different meals that Jesus shared with either an intimate group of people or a a large gathering of folks. You can hardly turn a page in Luke's gospel without finding Jesus either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And Jesus uh, did not view meals as simply fuel for the body. One author says that Jesus viewed Uh, meals as soul food. I love that. Um, That he viewed them as uh, times uh, of grace and welcome, hope and salvation. And so this morning, as I wrap up this series, we're going to look at the final meal that Jesus shared. It's a meal of promise. And so the passage that we're going to look at this morning is Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. So Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, and that's found on page 884 in the Pew Bibles, and so if you don't have uh, your own Bible, you can grab one from the Pew Rack, and uh, if there's not one around there, you can follow along in the bulletin where it's printed, but we're going to read a good portion of Luke 24. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read God's Word. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever, and your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Now I pray this morning, as I pray every week, that your spirit would go before the reading and preaching of the word, and your word, which is the revelation of the word of Christ, would live and work within us and among us this morning. That, Lord, where your word confronts us and our sin, that we would be convicted and come to you with repentance and faith, and where your word points us to Jesus, as it always and clearly does, that we would fix our eyes on him. We ask this all in his name. Amen. So Luke 24, we'll begin in verse 13. This is God's holy word. And that very day, two of them, two of uh, these followers, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early the morning, early in the morning. and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken." Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. May God write his word upon our hearts. In 1618, the Spanish artist uh, Diego Velazquez painted uh, this this scene. He depicted this scene from Luke 24 in in a painting uh, named Kitchen Maid with the Supper of Emmaus. And in the painting, Jesus and the disciples are in the upper left-hand corner. They're sort of out of view. But the focus of the painting is in the center of the canvas on a maid. And she has this look of astonishment on her face because she realizes that she has just served. Dinner to a previously dead man. And so do you have this visual? Jesus and the disciples are sort of up out of the scene. They're they're conversing. They're having this conversation that's written of here. And there's this this look of astonishment on this maid's face who's, of course, not in the text, but um, we can imagine. And she has this look of astonishment because she realizes that she's just served dinner to Jesus. Well, several years later, that painting was altered uh, by its new owner, and the Emmaus scene was covered over with an entirely new painting, and the left-hand corner of the canvas was cut off so that Jesus and the disciples were entirely removed. And the original version that was painted originally in 1618 was only rediscovered in 1933, and they were restoring this painting. They were cleaning it. And, um, and they, they saw the painting beneath the painting. They saw this scene from Emmaus. But even after restoring this painting, what was the problem? Jesus was missing. He had been cut from the canvas. Friends, that painting is a metaphor for the way our culture often approaches Christmas. The, the Bible story, the original story has been painted over. And right? it's, been, it's been painted over. And our culture has removed the transcendent one And what we're left with are are people who seem to realize that someone otherworldly has entered their presence, but there's no reference point. Christmas without Christ is revisionist history. But what I want you to consider this morning is that even Christmas isn't the end of the story. This passage is really more of an Easter passage, but I'm going to tell you why we're exploring it this morning. Christmas is not the end of the Christ story. So Kimbo and I, that's my wife, we were watching a movie a few weeks ago. It's a, it was a heist movie, sort of a bank robbery movie. And, and about an hour and a half into the movie, I thought, okay, it's over. They got away with it. This is how the movie ends. But there was a twist. And the story continued to unfold for 15 more minutes or so. In the Old Testament, God promised to send a Redeemer. He promised to send a Messiah who would rescue his people and save them, and then when the time was just right, Jesus was born in a miraculous way to a young woman and her fiancé, and many who knew God's promise thought, okay, it's about over. This is how the story ends. But there was a twist, and the story continued to unfold. 33 years later, that baby had become a man, and Jesus was betrayed and crucified. He died a criminal's death. And some who knew God's promise thought, okay, now it's about over. This is how the story ends. But three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, an actual bodily resurrection. And only a handful of people who knew God's promise thought, okay, now now it's about over. This is how the story ends. But there was a twist, and the story continues to unfold. Forty days later, 40 days after Easter Sunday, Jesus met two men on the road to Emmaus, and they walked and talked, and as day turned to night, they asked him to stay. And their conversation that evening continued over a meal, the meal that's depicted in Velazquez's painting. And as the day expired, verse 51 says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And when he was carried up into heaven, they must have thought, okay, now it's over. Now it's over. This is where the story ends. But there's a twist. And the story continues to unfold, and now we find ourselves in the story. The story is still unfolding because Jesus tells us that he will return. And the meals that he shared with his disciples, and the meals that we now share with one another, particularly at this table, are just a foretaste of the meal that we will share for eternity. Christmas is not the end of the Christ story. The cross is not the end of the Christ story. The empty tomb is not the end of the Christ story. The ascension is not the end of the Christ story. Every time we celebrate Advent, our eyes must also look towards the next Advent. In 1496, um, another famous painter painted a scene of Jesus eating. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, he painted The Last Supper. And that depicts Jesus in the upper room, the meal we looked at last week, uh, celebrating Passover with his disciples. But here's what I want you to consider this morning. The Lord's Supper is not the Last Supper. That's what da Vinci called it, but it's not Jesus' Last Supper. Even this meal, his last meal on earth, is not the Last Supper. You see, in Luke 22, Jesus said, For I tell you, I will not eat this salvation meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this may seem odd, but I don't want you to focus today on Jesus' first advent. We're two days from Christmas. We're in the season of advent. I don't want you to focus today on Jesus' first advent. I want you to focus this morning on his next advent. Every time we reflect on Jesus' birth, we should also reflect on his death. And every time we reflect on his death, we should also reflect on his resurrection. And every time we reflect on his resurrection, we should also reflect on his return. When Jesus returns, the Lord's Supper is replaced with the Lamb's Supper, what John writes about in Revelation 19. And so from this meal here in Luke 24, the last meal that he has on earth before he comes back and we have this meal with him for eternity, from this meal... I have three thoughts that I want to share with you this morning because this is a meal of promise. It's a promise that Jesus will come again and he will feast with us forever. And so first, I want you to consider how this meal in Luke 24 points us to Jesus' saving promise. How this meal points to his saving promise. So when we first began this series uh, six weeks ago, I asked you, How would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came. Now complete the sentence. The Son of Man came. How would you complete the sentence? We've spent the last six weeks unpacking Luke 7.34, which says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus' method of revealing his person and purpose was through food and drink and shared meals. But Luke also records in chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save sinners. And when we think about his salvation, tell me if this is not true of you, when we think about his salvation, when we think about his saving promise to seek and to save the lost, we almost exclusively focus on his work on the cross. That's good and right for us to focus on the cross, but that's not where the saving promise is fully and finally fulfilled. The Apostle Paul tells us that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is meaningless. And so we have to have the cross and the empty tomb. But the empty tomb isn't the end of the story either. The saving promise is only fully and finally fulfilled when Jesus returns to finish what he started. When Jesus returns at his next advent and rights all the wrongs, then his saving promise is fully and finally fulfilled. And so, uh, one of Pastor Jason's pet peeves is singing joy to the world during the Christmas season. I mean, how can anyone not like singing joy to the world during the Christmas season? Well, Jason, as a little bit of a theology nerd like we all are, um, contends that the message of that hymn that we're going to sing today to close the service, as a little, as a little jab, the, he, Jason contends the message of that hymn is not about Jesus' first advent, but about his second advent. And he's right. He's right. I would just add that it is appropriate for us to sing Joy to the World during the Advent season because it's about His second Advent. And every time we celebrate His first Advent, His first coming, we must always look towards His second coming. Verse 3 of that hymn, which we'll sing in a few moments, reminds us of God's saving promise No more let sins, nor sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That that verse, that hymn, it points us to Jesus' second coming when the promise will be fully and finally fulfilled. And so in this meal here, there are allusions to Jesus' saving promise. There are things that if we have eyes to see, point us to his saving promise. Did you notice what Jesus did Um, when he sat down at table with them. When he was at table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, where have we heard that before? Remember in that desolate place in the countryside with 5,000 gathered? He took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples. Luke 22 in, in the upper room, Jesus celebrated Passover. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. In the meal with the 5,000, he's revealing himself as the Messiah. In the meal in the upper room, he's revealing himself as the Passover lamb. And here, just hours before his ascension, what does he do? Same words, same sequence. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. What happens when he does that? Their eyes are opened. They recognize him. See, it's all coming together. Salvation promised is becoming salvation accomplished. So this meal points us to God's saving promise. The second thing I want you to consider is how this meal points us to Jesus' certain promise. A promise that is certain, that is sure. So I really... I really hope that I haven't made a huge parenting mistake with my little daughter, Cooper. Uh, only time will tell, I suppose. Um, maybe I've created trust issues that will linger for years. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, so I don't remember when she and I started this little, this little dance, but, um, but I will say to her, Cooper, come give Dad a little kiss on the cheek. And when she comes to give me a kiss on the cheek, I'll turn and give her a peck on the lips. And she loves it. And she cackles and she cracks up. But the problem is I've created a monster. And so I do this all the time. Hey, Coop, give me a kiss on the cheek. I'll turn and give her a kiss on the lips. And so um, just a while back, she said, she said, Dad, don't turn your head this time. I'm going to kiss you on the cheek. I said, okay. And so she went to kiss me on the cheek. And then she stuck out her tongue and licked the side of my face. (laughs) Right? and it's gross it's gross and so now the tables have turned and I, I say alright Coop don't lick my cheek just, just give me a kiss on the cheek and I promise I promise I will not turn my head and she says okay dad let's pinky promise and so we, we lock pinkies and then the little devil still licks my cheek and she, she dies laughing. She goes, hi, my fingers were crossed. Or, or we did this yesterday. We were doing this exact same thing unfolded yesterday, and I'm looking at her hands, and she's wearing no shoes, because now she knows how to cross her toes. And she licks my cheek, and she goes, I was crossing my eyes. See, the problem in this little dance that we do is that both of us have made promises, but neither one of us are certain that those promises mean anything. Right. I promise that I won't turn my head, and when I live up to my promise, she licks my cheek. And when she promises she won't lick my cheek, she does because her fingers are crossed. And in this meal, Jesus convinces them that he is real. He convinces them that his promise is certain. It's not a promise that he will back out on. And so we we didn't read down further, but after dinner, while they were talking, Jesus said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts he says take a look at my hands and feet touch, touch me if if i if i were an apparition would i have a body that you could touch he eats fish he says if i were if i were a ghost essentially how could i eat this fish and then he said you are witnesses of these things i am sending the promise of the Father upon you. It's a certain promise. And the continuing unfolding Christ's story is the promise to send the Holy Spirit. And we know from Acts 2 that Jesus fulfilled the promise. And so, friends, now you and I, we live between the fulfillment of the promise here at the end of Luke and his next advent. We live between when Jesus made the promise and when the promise is fully and finally fulfilled, but the promise is certain. Jesus has made good each and every time, and he will not fail us. Now, it is a certain promise. His promise of salvation, to finish what he started, to right all the wrongs, to send the comforter, the aid, the the Holy Spirit uh, in the interim. He has not failed us yet, and he will not. And so let me... Let me pick on Cooper one more time. Uh, Coop Coop is a girly girl. In fact, she's the girliest little girl I know. And um, Kimba and I don't know where that comes from because um, Kimba was a bit of a tomboy when, when she was little. But, but Coop is such a girly girl. And a, a couple of weeks ago, I, on Saturday, I thought I, was, I thought I was raising like Beyonce or something. She had a wardrobe change six times in one day. Um... Even today, I mean, she's dressed up for a ball. So as a girly girl, she's dying to get her ears pierced. She just, she just turned six a few weeks ago. She's dying to get her ears pierced. And we've told her that she can get her ears pierced when she stops sucking on her fingers. So she's got to have a little incentive. She still has that little baby tendency of sucking on her fingers. So you can get your ears pierced when you stop sucking on your fingers. Now here's the thing, she already has some earrings, right? She already has some earrings, and they're just waiting for a place to go. We've made a promise to her. We've even put down a deposit on that promise, a guarantee on that promise. But the promise has not yet been fulfilled. It's a certain promise, but it hasn't yet come to fruition. And it's the same with Jesus at this last meal, The promise is certain, but we wait. And in this case, it doesn't depend on us. There are no strings attached. So I ask Coop, I I try to ask my kids if I can share a story about them in the sermon. And I ask Coop, I said, hey, um, can I tell that story? And she says, yes, you can. But make sure you tell them that I do wear clip-on earrings. (laughs) So she wears (laughs) clip-ons. Tim Chester um, has been really helpful during this series. He, he wrote a book called A Meal with Jesus. And he says, The reign of Christ is now hidden. For us, now, in this moment, the reign of Christ is now hidden, but one day it will be manifest and all the earth will see his glory. It is a certain promise. At the first advent, Jesus' glory was revealed. At his second advent, his glory will be fulfilled. And then so finally, this meal and really all the meals that Jesus shared point us to his saving promise that he is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves it's a certain promise we wait we hope with hope and longing but it's a certain promise that he's going to finish what he started and the final thing this meal reveals to us is a heartwarming promise this story and this meal is heartwarming And I mean that literally. Um, Verse 32 says, They said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? What do you think about when you hear the phrase heartwarming? I mean, I, I think of like sappy sentimentalism. I think of Hallmark Christmas movies. I think of something that's sort of shallow or wimpy. And so we, we tend to shy away from that phrase, heartwarming. But when we feast with Jesus, when we eat with Jesus, when we come to this table, when we gather with his people, when, when Jesus reveals himself to us in the word, our hearts are meant to burn, literally, because the promise is alive within us. This meal is Heartwarming. Every time Jesus meets you in his word, every time he meets you at the table, it should be heartwarming. Our hearts should cry out, yes, it's true. I I believe. Jesus came to eat with sinners like me, and he's coming again to feast with a saint like me. And, And that's who we are as God's people. That's who we are as God's people. We are sinner saints. And so if if you're a sinner but you're not yet a saint. What I mean is if you haven't trusted Jesus by faith. If this morning he has shown you your sin, he has revealed to you your need, but you aren't in relationship to him by faith alone. And, and something in your heart is warmed by the promise of Jesus. Bible says today is the day of salvation. Call on him. Believe in him. And then all of us wait with patience. We wait with patience for his second advent. And so as we go to the meal at the table this morning, as you sit down with family and friends over the next couple of days and eat with them, our hearts and eyes should be fixed on Jesus. Where as we consider his first coming, we also consider his second. And we wait for that supper. Let's do so in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace and goodness given to us in Jesus, um, that Jesus has done for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. He has saved us, um, not merely in his work on the cross, but uh, he rose again, defeated death. But the empty tomb doesn't bring it to completion When he returned to the Father, he promised to return again to us. Jesus, you have promised to come again. And so I I pray that uh, over the next couple of days as we have over the last four weeks, as we have thought about your first coming, uh, humbly, as a a little babe born to um, the most unlikely couple laid in a manger, that we would also think about your next coming where you will ride in victorious as king. And no one will mistake who you are then, as they did when you first came. No one will mistake your second coming. And so let us consider both. You're coming for us as sinners. And as we eat this food and drink this wine by faith, let us look forward to uh, the time we will eat this meal again uh, perfectly in the kingdom when you come back for us. We ask this in your strong and certain name. Amen. We have many.